Hi, my name is John, and I like college teaching. Do you like to sit around for a while? Found yourself a little pet crocodile. Do you like to just live in the moment? Do you like the stars and moon in the comments? What do you like, do you like? 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 Welcome to What Do You Like, the podcast where we get to know a person through their passions and hobbies. I am your host, Jeremy Zaha, and today on the podcast, we are interviewing the most educated person on this podcast. We've interviewed one other person who was going for his PhD, but we're talking to someone who's gotten his PhD who is a tenured professor at the Illinois State University, one of the finest establishments in this great land of America. The place that bestowed upon me my bachelor's of science, my BS degree. Um, and as someone who I've known for many years, um, he's actually played, I don't know if he realizes this, he played a big uh place in my life in reestablishing my love for professional wrestling for a while I was I was following wrestling I liked wrestling but I wasn't it wasn't like a regular thing that I was watching um I was trying to do a bunch of other things with my life but uh, he was a friend of a friend and he came to a trivia night at uh, uh, a pizza establishment and bar um in Bloomington Normal. And he found out I, I liked wrestling. And he gave me a three-month subscription to the WWE Network. Which continued all the way until right now when WWE Network no longer exists. Because Peacock paid a billion dollars for that <laughs> the video content. So without this man, I don't know if I would be as into pro wrestling today. I mean, I'm... I, I'd like to think I would have followed my way back to it, but he definitely kind of jump-started that. Um, and also, based on the trivia nights, he's also a very intelligent man, which makes sense why he got that PhD. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce everyone listening to the great doctor, John Hooker. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, I don't know how to live up to that. That's very kind of you. Thank you for all those words. And I'm, I, I think I can say I'm glad I got you back into wrestling. I don't have to apologize for that because it seems like it <laughs> seems like you're enjoying it. So it is. It it has has led to a career change, which is uh, much appreciated. Um, and you, there's nothing for you to need to live up to. I mean, you've already established yourself in the education world. Um. No one listening to this podcast is going to. <laughs> I we don't. I'm. Uh, I don't know for this for sure, but I don't think we have like the the Oxford crowd listening to this podcast. Actually, I know we don't because we don't have any listeners in England. Um, but I mean, you are. Uh, I mean, you're you're a tenure professor at a at a distinguished public university. I mean, I think that that speaks for itself. And it kind of leads into what we're talking about today in, in your passion. Um, and it's for teaching. Now, what makes that 
unique is a lot of times you get professors in college and I'm as a college graduate myself, I like to, I paid a lot of money for that. So I would like to say that every once in a while. Um, there are some professors who really didn't care about teaching. They're there for like the research, which is important. But as a person paying a lot of money to go to school, it's not really the best situation for me. You, on the other hand, you do not fall into that category. You are very much someone who who's there to do the research to like further your your growth, but also you're there to help your students. So, I guess to start, um, when you were started in college, was the goal always to be like a college professor? It wasn't. And when I first went to college, um, I had had some experience in my local small town. I grew up in a small town about 30 minutes south of Bloomington Normal, um, Clinton, Illinois. And there was a local radio station there. And so there were some opportunities to do some things with that radio station. Some friends of mine and I would sit around the lunch table in the cafeteria during high school and just talk sports. And then one day we recorded that at my house. And then uh, one of the guys from the group took the recording to the radio station. And then we were given a sports talk show on Friday evenings when we were like sophomores in high school, just because it was a small town station. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of programming available. And from there I started to call games. I did girls softball in high school. I did boys baseball filled in for basketball and football here and there. And so I wanted to be a sportscaster. And so um, like you, I did my undergrad at Illinois state. And then started taking some journalism classes and then found out, well, hey, if you want to do sports casting at like Major League Baseball or the NFL, you got to start out working local stations on the weekends at night, not covering sports for about $20,000 a year. And so we're talking 25 years ago dollars, but still not a lot of money. And I did, I did pretty well in school and I enjoyed school. And so at that point I was in communication, but I shifted from kind of the sports casting mass media style communication to more like thinking about what I was going to do with my future and wanted to wanted to stick around and, and try to get my master's because I still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and the story that or the, the thing that you alluded to earlier about some professors wanting to do research, I think is what uh, what there's one story that I tell every every year when I train my new teachers is when I was a senior in college, I had to take in a European geography class. And in that class, the instructor told us, you're going to be quizzed on current events in Europe at the beginning of every class. And so we asked, well, should we watch like BBC news or how should we familiarize ourselves with this? And he said, uh, you'll just figure it out. So then every class began, he would go around the room and ask each person a question. And if the person didn't know the answer or had the wrong answer, he'd say, no, that's wrong. And then would move on and wouldn't tell us what the answer was. So we're called on the carpet at the beginning of every class period. And then the, the rest of the class consisted of him sitting behind a desk and showing slides from his European trips. And that, that kind of led me to think, I don't want any other students to ever have this experience. I was a very good student. I skipped this class more times than all the rest of classes I took in college combined because of how bad the teaching was. And so that allowed me to, or that, that led me to start to think once I started in the master's program at Illinois State, part of that was a teaching assistantship. And about three weeks into that, I decided this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. 
So tell me about that that kind of aha moment. Like at that point, you're still kind of unsure, sure. but all of a sudden, you're like, "Yep, I'm in." Was there like a specific thing that happened in that in that moment that kind of turned on you? Like, yeah, no, this is this is a possibility for me. I don't think there was like an aha moment during that. I I remember going into the training for this. So I was trained for two weeks before the fall semester of my, the first year of my master's program to be a teacher and to teach the basic public speaking course. And I was, I was um, kind of a shy person at that point. I was not very outgoing. The idea of public speaking wasn't something that I looked forward to. But when I got in the classroom, I found it was different because I was able to organize the lessons and I kind of, I felt like there was kind of an art to cramming all these things into a 50 minute class period and transitioning from one subject to another. And then the students asking questions and having to think on my feet, I found it to be very, very kind of invigorating. And so I'd say after about the third week, that was after I had graded the first round of assignments, I thought I can really do this. And I, and I really enjoy this seeing what these, how these students interact with this material and bring things from their lives. And so I, I consider myself a lifelong learner and feel like every time I teach, I'm learning something from the people I'm working with. So in that moment, you're like, you decide this is, this is, this is my field. This is where I want to be. And this is where I feel most happy. But like at that point, you're just getting your masters. Right. Was there like this almost, I don't want to say dread, but like, was there a little worry? Like, what does this look like to become a tenure professor? Like that, that's a lot of work coming up. Like what were the thought process there? So the thought process there was I really enjoyed my college years and felt like I really kind of came into my own as an undergrad. And then that continued in my master's program, but it was a, a level above. So when you're an undergrad, I think the typical experience is you go to classes, you meet new friends, you go out and have new experiences on the weekends and that sort of thing. But when I got to grad school, that's when I first started to be intellectually really, really challenged and stimulated. Uh, and remember having debates with other students in class and un- realizing that I understood what we were talking about. And then I got interested in the communication of teaching. So the way that teachers communicate with their students, everything from eye contact to using students' names to you know using nonverbal gestures, trying to create that bond with students. I mentioned earlier that professor would sit behind a desk and talk to talk at students basically. So what I learned through my program and then through things I researched was how to actually like reduce that, that actual physical barrier and just, you know, try to connect with the students through eye contact and those sorts of things. So I did research on those types of communication behaviors for my thesis. And I was encouraged by my professors, Hey, this is some really good work and you you should think about going on for a doctorate, which i had already thought about, but the encouragement of my peers or not my peers, they're now my peers. Um, but the encouragement of my professors at that time really helped me think that, yeah, I can do this. And I spent one day working for a temp agency where I was brought in to basically learn how to do the books for this construction company in a day and realized that was probably the biggest experience to say, Oh no, you're making the right choice by sticking with teaching because this is not your speed. The, the teaching being able to, have more autonomy about what I teach, being able to have more autonomy about my schedule. It just fits much better with my personality than, you know, your, your traditional nine to five, have to sit in an office at a desk type of job. 
you just touched on some some real personal memories for myself. I once also went through a temp agency, and I was as crazy as this sounds. Um, I was hired to do screen printing, <laughs> um, and I started on a Wednesday. Um, by Friday before lunch, I accidentally set a small fire. Oh, no. Um, I put out the fire with my hand, just out of reflex, just like, just patted it down, uh, burned my finger, um, went to the, the foreman who did not speak English very well, um, showed him, he's like, Ooh, are you okay to keep working? Oh no. And I was like, I guess I was like 18. Sure. (laughs) And so I went back to work and then I went to lunch came back and like the person above the foreman I saw is like, Hey, just so you know, I, I burned myself this morning <laughs> and he freaked out. Cause there's a liability there. Sure. He's like, we need to go see this specific doctor. I was like, can I just go see my, like, I've been here two and a half days. Can I just go see my, I still was going to my pediatrician at that point. I was 18. Can I just go see my regular doctor? I could just pop in. They look at it. I, I mean, it's a burn. There's not, there's nothing there. He, he finally let me, and then he's like, do you think you're going to be able to come in tomorrow oh, man. to work Saturday, which was never agreed upon. It's like extra overtime, but it wasn't overtime for me because I started on Wednesday. Needlessly, I never went back to that job. That's that's um, like straight out of office space, and that's like my worst fear of, of being in that kind of situation. Yes. But the silver lining, um, the temp agency was sued later on because they were, when people were leaving, they weren't paying out their vacation time. So I got uh, $2 and like 40 cents <laughs> later There's on. There's a win. Yeah. So uh, that is that uh, a previous thing on this podcast is like definitely take risks. Sometimes it's okay to take risks. And join a temp agency and start a small fire and put it out with your hand and then leave because you might get $2.40 in the back end. So, but back to, back to higher education. This is this, I'm speaking to a learned individual. I should, I should keep this more on track, but, uh, so you, you're, you're getting this positive feedback. You're getting this, um, like kind of just like reassurance that yeah this is where i should go from your professors so you you apply and 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 go for your doctorate what was it like when you finally achieved that when you when you finished your your thesis you defended it um and they approved it and you you got were given your doctoral papers i don't know what I just have a bachelor's. I don't know the stuff. Same thing. It's a diploma. Um, yeah. That was a long process. So there are a couple of things that I want to speak to with that, if that's, if that's cool. Um, so I went to, I, I went from Illinois state for my bachelor's and master's to Purdue university for my doctorate. Uh, Illinois state didn't offer a doctorate. And also it's better to go different places for your degrees just to get an idea of how it is in other places just in higher academia or in higher education and academia that's that's kind of what is expected that you don't get all your degrees at one place and it was really interesting because I thought I loved higher education on the whole and then I went to Purdue and it was a much different atmosphere Um, 
because there wasn't that doctoral program at Illinois State as a master's student, we got a lot of attention because Illinois State is a teaching university where teaching is valued as much as research. It's a different animal when you go to what's known as a research one university. So a university that like a doctoral granting university. So Purdue was a research one university where the professors were expected to produce three times as much research as those I had at Illinois State with teaching fewer classes. And the research that I do feeds my teaching. I'm not a research animal. Like I do the research that I need to do for my job, but my main passion is teaching. So when I went to this different place, it was kind of hard to fit in because teaching was not the top priority there. I had, I had excellent teachers and, and many of them that I had, you know, really enjoyed teaching, but research was the coin of the realm. Also during this time, uh, my wife at the time was getting her PhD and we had three children. <laughs> so between 2002, when I started that program, uh, and the time I finished it, I, I spent a, a long time there. It took me eight years to get through the doctorate because I was also teaching full time after I finished my classes um, and having a wife that was trying to do the same thing and uh, three small children. <laughs> so that was a long time. There were times I didn't think I would get there. I really didn't. I, I would send revisions of my dissertation into my advisor and he would tell me corrections to make, and I would make those and send them back. And then he'd send new corrections on the same thing that he didn't send the first time. So finally, at one point, I just said, I just sent him an email and said, look, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to finish this if these things keep going this way. So finally, things came together at that point. And then in 2010, I was able to finish up my dissertation. I was able to defend it. And then my, my favorite part of that was I was actually able to do the graduation ceremony uh, with my kids in attendance. So they got to see me get that. So that was one step in the journey, but there was still a long way to go to get the tenure track position and then to get tenured. Um, I've been applying at Illinois State for the previous three years because I figured if I could get that tenure track position, that would be the kick in the pants I needed to finally finish my dissertation. And that's what ended up happening. So I had gotten offered the job in I think like May of 2010, finished my dissertation a month later and graduated in August and then started the tenure track job at Illinois State in that August. Wow. So, so you have all this eight years of work, but just like having having that goalpost, like having like, this is what I'm working towards. Months later, <laughs> you have your, your doctorate. That's crazy. I mean, I think it, it speaks to like a, a human characteristic i think it's it's a lot harder to complete something if you don't see the reason why if you don't see the end point uh, sure or if there are other priorities too like caring for the children obviously was was something that that went ahead and then i was also teaching and then you know the dissertation was much much lower on the list and at the dissertation stage you're the only person that's going to motivate you to do it. There's, it's not like going to class and turning things in. Like it's just, it's just you and the work. And if you can't self-motivate, then it's not going to get done. Yeah. And I, from my understanding for like your true passion was never the research anyway. Right. So I think it, when you, you, when you're given three things to juggle family, your teaching, and then this research 
research is always going to come third because family obviously should come first because I mean, they're human beings that you're in charge of keeping alive. <laughs> right. Um, and then what you love doing is teaching. So it makes sense, but it, I mean, it does speak, I think to like the, the human characteristic that we want to know why we're doing something. And especially someone who is going into higher education, like you said earlier, lifelong learner, you want to keep learning, but you want to know where you're going. You want to, to kind of, you don't want to just, you're not just going to, well, you might just read a book to read a book, but you're mostly going to read a book because someone said, Hey, this has some new things, or it's from an author you've already known about. And you know that they're going to be like, there, there is some, some of that where you don't want to almost waste your time. Because there's so much information out there, like in higher education, your learning is learning time is precious time almost. Absolutely. We talk about that. Sometimes people will want to come into our classrooms and do research from other departments. And we just say that classroom time is so valuable. We can't we can't sacrifice any of it because of what we were already um, obligated to do for the university and for general education. So you are now in a tenure. We're going, going the life, life, uh, the timeline. Okay. You're now in a tenure track position. You're back at Illinois State University, which I assume you're very comfortable at because you spent many years there. You're from Central Illinois, growing yes. up, so like you're in a more comfortable place. Is it weird working with these people that were once your professors and are now? your peers, like you mentioned kind of offhand before, like they're, they're your coworkers at this point. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I talk about a lot with, with my colleagues now is this idea of imposter syndrome. Like, do I really belong here? How long is it until somebody figures me out and finds out that I'm not what I said I was, you know, and that's something that runs rampant throughout where I work with the people I work with pre-tenure folks, even post-tenure folks, and a lot of the grad students have that same sort of thing as well. Like, I'm not good enough to be here, and it's just a matter of time until I get I get found out. And that's something that I had, too, because I've graduated from my master's degree in 2002. I came back in 2005 after finishing my coursework at Purdue, and I was just working on my dissertation. And so I worked as an, a, a non-tenure track or just like a contract instructor for five years, working with them. And it was weird because I had just been calling these people professor and, you know, Dr. So-and-so previously. So it took, I had that like five-year buffer and then I started on the tenure track. And so at that point, the research component kicked back in. So for, for the tenure track, um, half of my time is spent doing um, teaching or administrative duties. Quarter of my time is, is allocated to research or quarter of my time is allocated to research. And then a quarter of time is my administrative duties, sorry, 50% teaching, which I never had a problem with the teaching. But then when I had to start doing the research and then trying to partner with people and ask them to be colleagues instead of mentors, yeah, it was it was a, a strange situation to navigate. It was really weird. Um, fortunately, they're all awesome people. And the reason I wanted to work at Illinois State was because of the atmosphere that was there. So after a few years, I was, I was kind of able to, to get over that but i'd say i didn't fully get over it until i was like a year past having tenure like just 
not believing not believing I was good enough and then still not believing it was real. Wow. So <laughs> that's interesting that you're you're a full year into like someone's already established you are you're a tenured faculty member. You're good. Ba- tenure basically means like you're good. You've proven yourself. You're we we are no longer going to make you jump through hoops. We know you're capable of generating new information but also passing on the information to the future generation and the reason we're here is to educate the future generation but it's still a full year after that after you've been (laughs) bestowed this that's i mean i think it's and again i think it speaks to a, a human uh characteristic again that. Um, we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like right. <laughs> what's what's like things are going too good at this point. I, 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 if there are people out there that can just accept positive things happening without any sort of hesitation, I would love to, to be in their shoes for just a, a moment to just like believe, believe, Oh yeah, all this is good and it's going to be good. <laughs> Like, I think so many people, especially now in, in the age of COVID, right. like, <laughs> you're just like, what's the, what's the next, what's the next terrible thing that's going to happen? Well, that was a year long news cycle of just, yeah, what's next? Yeah. Oh, man. So you're now, you're now tenured track. So you're now in the position of your, um, the, the other, your professors mm-hmm. and you're now teaching the next like you're teaching uh graduate students for the most part right yes um and, and one big part of my job i mentioned earlier about the the, the basic public speaking course is what i taught when i was a master's student and i've been in this role of being one of the, the two people that supervise and train those students so um, i came through the program as a master's student and then when i came back i was able to fill in for one of the two people that had trained me because he had moved on to another administrative position. So now I co-direct this public speaking program with my thesis advisor, which is fantastic. And um, I, I almost consider her like a motherly figure to me. Um, and she's really helped me out quite a bit as a grad student. And then also as, you know, as a pre-tenured faculty and then as a tenured faculty member. So we've worked together in this position for I think 15 years now. Uh, so we, we, we've got a really, really good sense of each other. And then in that position, we train about 20 new first year master students each year to then go teach this public speaking course. So we have about 40 master students and then probably another 15 um, non-tenure track instructors that teach this. So any given semester, we've probably got about 60 instructors teaching 80 sections of the public speaking course to all first or second semester students. So they take it one semester in their first year. So we get around 3000 students that come through this program. So one of the things that that I do is I I train these teachers in that same two week training before the semester, but then we have an ongoing training class that meets once a week. And then anytime something happens where some student does something in the classroom that's out of bounds or that seems odd, then I get consulted on that sort of thing. So my favorite thing is training these teachers uh, to be to be teachers that first two weeks before the semester and then just watching them grow as teachers. I, I love being able to, to, to train and then to nurture 
people that are always enthusiastic about teaching because it's brand new to them. So you're now teaching, you're basically teaching the people that you know are passionate about the, the subject matter and want to kind of develop those skills. How does that compare to when you were teaching those first year students um, who are required by the university to go through that course? Like, is it a uh, an easy, like, I assume it's easier, but do, do you kind of miss the challenge of those first year students? I do, because um, it's rare that I get to teach that class just because there's other higher level classes that they need me to teach. Um, but when I do teach that class, I really enjoy it because similar to the new master students, their first time teaching, these are first year students in this public speaking class. So it's their first time taking college classes. And if it's fall semester, it's one of the first classes they've taken. And the, the neat thing about that class is it's small, it's 23 students, whereas these first year students might be taking large lecture classes for the rest of the time. So they really like to get to know the instructor of these classes. And when they're first year master's students, you know, when it's not an old guy like me, they've got a lot in common with them because those master's students are just, you know, three, four years older than they are. So um, that's really enjoyable. I think that the ones that are hardest to reach are my undergrads. I still teach one undergrad class each semester and it's a required research methods course. Uh, so teaching math and science to people that study communication. I'd say that's, that's the most challenging to make that interesting for them. Yeah, I can, I graduated with a sociology degree and when I started college, I wanted to be a math high school math teacher. Then I realized like I have to major in math to do that. <laughs> There's the and catch. I was like, no, I'm out. So then I switched back to, I switched down. I dropped a level to middle level education, which is more based on, I mean, there, you still have to understand math, but it's more, um, almost more theoretical, almost okay. where it's like understanding how people learn and like understanding different ways to look at numbers, like looking at counting on a, a base eight system where you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, zero, two, three, four, five, or one, 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 two, like you can't say 11 cause it's not 11 mm -hmm. cause that's bad at base 10. I, I enjoyed a lot of that. The reason I didn't go into education, I realized like, well, I'll, I'll teach a public school and I don't want to deal with the bureaucracy of that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, that's why I switched to sociology, but like, I had that background with like some math understanding. Now I've forgotten almost all of it. Um, Cause if, if you don't use it, you lose it for sure. But when we had statistics as a required class in the school of sociology, similar, I think to communications, I did fine because it was like real basic math functions. You just had to like, and literally they, <laughs> they put all the equations on the board mm. before a test you literally just had to understand how to use the, those equations. That's that's my approach as well. Yeah, I mean, because realistically, when you're in the field, like it, it's not like these are going to be hidden from you. Like they're always going to be available. You just need to know how to apply them. But some people are like, I don't understand any of that. Like this is I'm lost because a lot of people that are going into communication or sociology or any liberal arts degree. It's not because they were good at math. Um, <laughs> I resemble that. I resemble that remark, by the way. I, yes, I was not a math major either. No, I think a lot of people are like, but I mean, it, it is an important part of the research process. And 
that kind of leads into, so you're a tenured professor. You're still having to do some research. Yep. What is that like one in normal times? Oh, sure. Um, like doing the research and then compare it to the last year when everyone's just been living in computer screens. It honestly hasn't changed a whole lot because at this point, the research that I do is, is pretty much what my students are doing because they obviously are on the cutting edge of social media, which I am not. Um, they're on the cutting edge of this generation and how they might communicate more natively because I, I mean, I've got, I've got three test subjects in my teenage kids that I can kind of tap into, but I, I honestly have seen a change, like a generational change from when I started doing this uh, a little over 20 years ago to now in the type of students that we have and the type of, of classroom issues that we face. That's a little bit different. Uh, but since I teach this graduate research methods class, I have them write a research proposal as part of that class. And a lot of them will then take that proposal on to do a thesis or to do further research. So my role is working with them and helping them get that research to where it needs to be. Occasionally I'll work with um, people that do what I do across the country. We've got a research team and people will come up with ideas and then we'll work on that. But we were working on that remotely anyway before the pandemic. Um, the thing I do miss the most and what I'm really looking forward to getting back to is having grad students just drop in my office and say, hey, I was thinking about this and, and run into my colleagues in the hallway and say, hey, I, I've got an idea. What's your what's your what's your take on this? I miss I'm <laughs> I miss random conversations with really smart and really passionate people because I've I've lost that by not just being physically present at work and bumping into people. Yeah, that is a real big downfall to the virtual setting is that you don't have those like chance encounters. Right. Like everything has to be scheduled. I I a few episodes ago, we talked to someone about um, her passion for education and the availability of education, and she mentioned like this pandemic has kind of, and I mentioned this. I hate this word, but it's a, it's a buzzword. Disrupted. Mm -hmm the the world of education and that it's forced people to um think about how education can be done um and how there probably there are a lot of people i think that they do better in this virtual world like they're they're more focused they might they get they might be getting even more individual attention in this in this environment that they need and things can kind of be tailored to them but I think there there is a lot lost in the virtual world in that you don't have this that like that human interaction like almost camaraderie very much um, that you just of just seeing everyone that you're <laughs> that you're working with that you're learning with um, and I don't I don't think I've realized um, how much I have missed those like just like random bumping into people. Like when I was working in an office, like uh, I would say a large, not a large portion, but a size, uh, maybe sometimes a large portion of my day was spent just walking and talking to other people at their desk. Like, yeah. like not wanting to sit there and just stare at a spreadsheet, like actually getting out and talking to people that we can't do right now. No, not at all. But the good thing is I think, 
when we're through this, I think everyone will appreciate that a lot more. Um, while also having the um, the capability, the digital capabilities in their back pocket for like distance friendships and things like that. For sure. I one of the things that I've thought about too is making myself available on zoom as well as in person, because sometimes I don't understand that. I, I guess I do understand this, but I, I don't care for it is that a lot of the graduate students are afraid to approach the professors. Again, this whole imposter syndrome issue and are afraid to, to, you know, talk to us because they need us on their committees for their final projects. But they're, I, I've been told by a few of them that they've got group chats that people are asking about, Oh, is so-and-so scary. And, my colleagues are not scary. My colleagues are awesome. But without seeing each other in the hallways, like we had one Zoom meeting with all of the new graduate students and all the professors last fall. But without seeing people, you know, kind of in the wild, it, it is difficult to approach them. So I'm trying to think about ways to incorporate what we've learned during this to be more inclusive and accommodating for people. Yeah, and, and also I think sometimes people don't want to have to put on pants to go talk to somebody. <laughs> that's, so. that's a strong motivator for me, <laughs> that's for sure. It was it was weird, and there there was about a year where I was working remotely that I might have put on jeans like three times the entire time. And then when I, in my new position where I'm in person, it was strange <laughs> getting up and be like, I got to put on pants, I got to. <laughs> I got to shower every day. I got to do all this stuff. Like, but I think as someone who like studies communication, I think uh, that has to be, this has to be an interesting time in like understanding humans. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and some of the things that happened, I would, I would do differently in hindsight, but I didn't know at the time. So we weren't informed that we were going to be all online. Um, until 13 days before classes started in the fall. Oh, wow. Which was the day before we started training our new instructors. Um, and I had thought that I was going to, one of my roles was going to be going around to classrooms and making sure that people were wearing masks, right. To make sure that my, mm-hmm. my, my new teachers who are on their first day teaching ever, I didn't want them to be having to argue with people about mandates. I figured I was going to be the one to go around and try to enforce that. So as a result, I didn't teach synchronously that first semester in the fall. So I just, it was basically self-paced for everybody that took my classes. And for me, that was bad because I didn't have an appointment weekly to do any kind of communication or any kind of conversations. I didn't have a schedule. Um, And about two months into that, I felt like I didn't know how to talk to people anymore because I hadn't been doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't had to prepare lectures to deliver in real time. Um, so by the spring I switched to doing it synchronously and I feel a lot more human as a result of that. Wow. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be surprised. One thing in this pandemic I did early on is uh, me and some friends, a lot, some of them that don't even live in this area. We did a weekly zoom call where, when it first started, it was like, Hey, are you, are you still mentally okay? And then I basically just turned to, we play board games online. Um, cause my one friend, what he's done during the pandemic is just develop board games. Oh. Like he's developed like eight board games. That's awesome. <laughs> in the last year. 
Um, but yeah, like it is weird, like not knowing how to talk to people. And like when I'm out in the, in the world, like there is still that hesitation. Like, I don't want to talk to you cause <laughs> you might have the thing that might kill me. Um, but soon we won't have to worry about that. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers. I'm, I'm speaking positivity into, into existence. I'm, I'm, I'm making a virtual dream board in my brain right now. I'm there with you, man. I've already started to look for concert tickets and yeah. wrestling tickets and yeah, I, I can see the light. So that, that kind of s- s- jumps into my, my next question in that you've been now, you're now a tenure professor you are past the the stage where the imposter system stage imposter syndrome syndrome thank mm-hmm. you words are becoming harder in the pandemic I, for me as that's well that's what i which, was talking about which is not great hosting a podcast too but uh, this podcast i honestly has made it a lot easier to to communicate because i'm I, it basically forces me to have longer conversations with people um, so if you're out there and you're unsure if you should start a podcast, go ahead. Uh, worst case scenario, no one listens to it, and then you just get to practice speaking. Or you can get lucky like me and have a lot of people listening to it, and you get to get constant feedback on your speaking ability. Um, most of it positive. Uh, <laughs> well, and it, it, from your podcast, I've listened to, to a number of episodes, and you always learn something from it, too, I think, from these conversations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I will. I'll plug a book, um, by the McElroy brothers. I don't know if anyone's heard of them. Um, everyone has a podcast except for you. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's like a how to on how to kind of set up a a podcast, and it doesn't take much. Um, but enough about this podcast. Where I was going in that, we're now. On the back end of COVID, hopefully, and you're you're there. You're you're a tenure professor. You're you're a, you're a doctor. So you're you're kind of already on the trajectory. Where do you kind of see your career developing, and what what do you want to see in your future? Is there any changes you like to see, or are you just kind of happy where you're where you're heading? thing that I think has, has shifted for me, this started to happen probably like 2018, 2019. So like I told you, I needed that basically breather year of, oh yes, I actually did get tenure. Now I actually do belong. Um, and it started before the pandemic and I hope to, to do more of it. I've been doing it for a long time with the graduate students and, and now I've started to do it with my younger faculty colleagues. And that's the idea of mentoring. I feel like there are a lot of things during what I, my, my path to this point that if somebody would have like grabbed my arm and pulled me aside and said, Hey, here's an easier way to do that. Or here's something that I wish I would have known when I was in your shoes. That's kind of the role I see myself in right now, because I've got, I've got some friends that are going through the tenure process themselves, trying to make sure that they've got, you know, everything that they need in terms of enough research that their teaching is, is good, that they're doing enough service for the university community and for the discipline. And so just kind of bring, just kind of encourage them and saying, Hey, you're doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing. Hang in there trying to fight this imposter syndrome that I struggled with kind of, kind of quietly because I was, when I was younger, I was just headstrong, just put my head down. And it's like, I'm, I'm going to get there. 
It might take me longer than other people, but I'm going to get there. But I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask for help because that's weakness. And I realize now that was, that was foolish. Um, it's just so hard to see when you're in it because you're like, I can't ask anybody for help because then they'll know I'm an imposter. So my goal is to try to work with the grad students as I have for the last 15 years and then to work with the younger faculty that I work with and just try, kind of be a combination like cheerleader and um, promoter for them because a lot of them don't want to toot their own horns because they don't want the attention. But I want to make sure that you know, they're realizing they're doing a good job and other people are as well. So I kind of see that not just at my university, but um, we have a conference every year that's the basic course directors conference. And it's people that do what I do from all over the country. Um, but every year that we do that, about 50% of the people are new. And it, there's a lot of turnover in the position that I do. Um, either people getting promoted to other administrative positions, because this is kind of the entry to administration and communication for a lot of folks um, or people that burn out because it's a tough job a lot of places with not a lot of support so I, I've worked into the leadership of that group and are, we're trying to put together a conference for June virtually and then try to get back together um, in person but just passing along my knowledge because like I said I've been doing the, this particular portion of the job for 15 years now I've seen a lot of different scenarios and feel like I can pass along a lot of information to people that are just starting out that don't have that experience. I think that's so valuable. And I think it takes people like you that are truly passionate about passing on this knowledge. I mean, that is what teaching is and teaching is taking what you know and creating it to that, to be digestible to another person and a lot of people I think um, especially if we're going to get political about it um, <laughs> people kind of view it as a simple task and it's not not at, at no point is it easy um, but especially trying to teach people to be teachers like that's like to the whole nother level of <laughs> inception where it's like i need to t like Im put in your brain what's in my brain to be able to put what your brain what's in your brain into someone else's brain that's very meta <laughs> yeah um but i mean it, it's an important process because uh, as we're learning nowadays there's a lot of people that don't truly understand what's going on in the world um and I'm so glad that there are people like you out there that are able to do that, are that are able to kind of create a world in that we learn more. And especially in communication, like not to put down like medieval history, but medieval history is a very small place in the importance of what we should know. But I'm glad people are passionate about it, but it's not super important. But like communication and being able to communicate with others is so important um, that especially right now. And I think with future generations, we're losing some of that because everyone's kind of in their own hole or creating their own silo of what they believe. Um, I'm just glad that you're out there. Um doing this kind of stuff 
Um, and as we, we kind of wrap up, do you have any like words of, I want to say encouragement, but, um, kind of wisdom to, for, for everyone out there, just kind of like right on the spot though. I mean, again, I did, I did talk you up as you're, you're a a doctor and all this, but you're also a human being. Um, and like with the, the, where the world is now, like where is, are there certain areas that people should be like looking for help with communication or like what's something they should watch out for? Um, so that we don't die or (laughs) our brains don't explode. Those are the, the great big questions, aren't they? Um, well, first to to kind of address something that you mentioned at the beginning of of that statement, uh, my mentor, who I mentioned earlier, is kind of like my mom figure. She always told me the difference between um, knowing and teaching is communication. So you may know something, but you may not be able to pass that along. And I think, you know, as a sports fan, I've seen that a lot where players that may have been the best players of all time, like, you know, Wayne Gretzky in hockey or like Wade Boggs in baseball. And I'm, I'm dating myself with these references, but, <laughs> but uh, a lot of times they're, they're not good coaches because everything came so naturally to them because they were such fantastic athletes. And so that idea of, yeah, I know, I know how to go out and be the greatest goal scorer of all time, or, you know, I know how to go out and, and be one of the greatest hitters of all time, but I can't tell somebody else how to do that. So that communication piece I think is important. I also think with social media these days and with everything that's been going on and it's been, it's been magnified tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold in the last year because we can't go out. (laughs) We can't leave the house. So all we're doing is consuming all of this media and there's a lot of people talking. There's a lot of people putting their thoughts out there. We need more people listening. We need more people to, instead of as soon as I see something that you post, I'm going to say, well, actually, and contradict you, we need more people thinking about, well, why did they post that? What's their backstory? So listening and empathy are the things that I think, I hope we can extend more to, to each other going forward. Um, because I think that I, I've had students that have caused disruptions in my, my teacher's classes before. And I've had to, there've been a time or two that I've had to intercept them before going into class and bring them to my office and, and kind of a conversation and just be like, what's going on? Um, uh, there's even been times when I, I've had to have a police officer accompany me to intercept this person. And then I bring them to my office and we talk and we figure out, you know, where is this coming from? Just the types of behaviors that made people very uneasy, nothing threatening necessarily, but just this idea of not knowing how to communicate with each other in real time, in a real space or, or in a real place. Um, but I found that every time I bring them back to the office and let them just talk and just listen to them, I can figure out what's going on. And a lot of times it's not something to do with, with the class at all. It's just something they have going on in their lives. So taking the time to listen, taking the time to extend empathy and then trying to meet people where they are um, in, as citizens of a diverse democracy is I, I think key to us getting where we need to go, getting where we want to be as a society. I can't think of more beautiful words to leave <laughs> off on. Uh, just listen to everyone. I think that that's important. And I think, uh, I think some people might 
kind of push back and be like, well, what they're saying is completely crazy. Like no one's saying you have to believe what they're saying, but just listen to them. Like try to understand them. And the other thing is the, the best way to uh, convince someone of your side is to understand their side. Um, because if you don't understand where they're coming from, you have no idea how to present your information to a way that would kind of meet them where they are at. You um, got to keep trying to do that, even if it seems futile sometimes. I I get it, I know, but we got to keep trying. Yeah, that is that is the perfect way to kind of to sum up this podcast, John. It's been wonderful chatting with you. It's been too long. I agree. Um, uh, with these podcasts. <laughs> That honestly, that's a common theme of this podcast. But it's great that I get to have this conversation, and I'm I'm glad that, um, like I said many years ago, you gave me that three month <laughs> gift card. I just wanted somebody it, to talk to about wrestling. I know. Well, but I mean, again, it leads back to hey, communication, yep. like. There's, there's, there's a shared passion here and you understood where I was at and that I kind of seemed like a little bit, I wasn't a true laps fan in that I was still very much up on the dirt sheets as they call it in the industry. Um, but I just, there wasn't that motivation to actually consume it. But once someone paid money for me to to watch i was like well i gotta watch it like I, i'd be a real jerk if i did um <laughs> hey man right rising tide floats all boats the more the more wrestling fans we have to talk to the more interesting the conversations exactly exactly um but yeah th- I, just again thank you for joining me um we talked before this podcast you're not on social media I, I mean, I have an account, but it's been probably five or six years since I've used it on Twitter. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think as someone who has a doctorate in communication, you're probably on the right side of history <laughs> of not having social media as someone who dabbles in it. It's not the greatest place a lot of times. I mean, if I, I used to play in bands and so if I was in bands and had that kind of stuff to promote, it's fantastic for that sort of thing. But just for my position is what I do for you know, a living and a passion. It, it's, it's, it just doesn't serve much of a purpose for where I'm at right now. Yeah. But if people want to get a hold of you, if they have questions, I mean, obviously you have an email and, and I'm sure your information is publicly available at Illinois state. Yeah. You could, you could just Google John hooker, Illinois state, and it'll come up with my email address and yeah, feel free to shoot me an email. If, if you're interested in, in anything that was talked about or you want to challenge me on any of that i'm open again to listening and hearing of all those all those kinds of things see that's the first person the first guest in the podcast that has opened themselves up to be challenged <laughs> but again i think it speaks to you and that you truly believe what you say and that it's important to listen so that is i'm truly proud that you you'd be open to that now if you would like to connect in this podcast, I am on social media. Um, I don't really want to be challenged though. Um, <laughs> I'm okay with criticism, but don't, don't just come at me just to come at me. Um, but you can reach the podcast at what do you like podcast on Instagram or at WDYL podcast on Twitter, or you can go to our website. What do you like podcast.com? Um, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, we do these every Tuesday. I have not missed a Tuesday, even though I've missed posting about them on social media a lot recently. 
with some life changes. I have not missed an episode on Tuesday, so this is episode 35. We've had 35 consecutive weeks of podcasting. So if you don't want to miss, I suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you've enjoyed we listen to, if the platform you listen to has a review system, a five-star review um, would be wonderful. Um, Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend. Um, I think that's the best way to kind of to spread the word. Um, We have a nice group of people that listen every week, and I'm really enjoying some of the feedback I've gotten. But I'd always love for more people to be able to come in. I think, like we mentioned this podcast, the more people talking, I think the more we can all learn as a community. Um, thank you everyone for listening again. Thank you, John, for joining. And with that, we will see you next time.